How did you get cast in uh, Bully? I was an equity actor. I had just earned my equity card. I was after school. I went to school at Florida School of the Arts. I went to New York for summer and booked some plays back in South Florida. So I was I was around doing theater and musicals and just you know trying to make a living, earn my equity card, and then moved to New York City. And it doesn't pay a lot. I mean, I think the most they were paying at that time was like two eighty a week, you know, and housing. And so I met somebody in one of my plays who had a lover that was the drag queen host of a, uh, a talent show. So I would go and go to this talent show and try to win. I would sing jazz and stuff at this uh, street club called the Velvet Lounge and like try to you know make some money to pay my rent. And I often or not, there wasn't, there wasn't a huge, I guess, uh, talent pool in Fort Lauderdale and I would win and it would help me pay to subsidize my rent. So I was singing in this club that they were location scouting for Bully. And somebody told me they were making a movie there, and I was like, yeah, right, like, what kind of movie? You know, I was like, whatever. And I saw all the people from L.A., including Brad Renfro and Larry Clark and Carmen Cuba, like, walking around, talking to people and, like, looking around. And, you know, when you're from a, a small town, any kind of suburb, you can completely spot people from out of town, from, like, Los Angeles and New York. And, and I was like, oh, so this is something real that's happening. So I started positioning myself around the club in order for Carmen Cuba to be able to come up and talk to me at some point and let me know what was going on. And she finally did notice me and came up to me and was like, hi, I'm making a movie. And I was like, well, I'm an actor. And she's like, you are? And I'm like, yeah, I'm equity. She's like, you are. And at the time, there was like a stag strike and, and everything else. So I found out later that they were really hesitant about casting my role as a one of, you know, an original, like, Larry Clark, like, plucked from obscurity person, you know, and turning them into a SAG actor because then a lot of them don't work after. So, um, she had told me that, um, I went, to, she was like, yeah, well, we're making this movie, um, do you know who Larry Clark is? I'm like, of course I do. I love kids. I saw it eight times in the theater. And she's like, well, would you like to meet him? And I'm like, absolutely. And so that night I didn't win, but I did win like a $50 bar tab, so it's pretty drunk. And I went up to Larry and did the exact thing you're not supposed to do to a cool indie director and like started quoting his movie consistently like in front of him. Well, and he, with Larry, the worst thing you could have done was call him a pedophile, but... Yeah, well... But enough people do that. Um, well, that's what I mean. That would, have, that would have been the worst in terms of over the line. Well, yeah, I guess, but I literally was like, I literally was like, I love your movie so much, I have no idea. And like continue to just... Cost him, I guess, is the word he used. Um, and, and he just didn't like me and didn't want to be around me, kind of. I, I seemed like, I guess, a weird fan guy or whatever. So Carmen was like, listen, um, I'm going to call you about this. You know, give me your number and everything. So I didn't expect to ever hear anything and have anything come of it. And then I had, I worked with, and I used the term loosely, a couple of agents in Fort Lauderdale. Like, you know, so people who just got whatever came through South Florida, you know, there isn't a lot of work going around down there as far as filmmaking. I mean, there's more today these days, but back then there wasn't. And so um, both agents called me with an appointment for this movie and this casting director that I had gone out on a commercial with uh, like, a, two, uh, like two weeks before also called me and I started getting, my phone was like ringing off the hook with all appointments for the same movie and my heart started to beat. And I went down to see the casting director and sat in his lobby like waiting for him and he came out and he was like, you, you, we're looking all over for you. You need to go in on this picture and blah, blah, blah. And, and my like, you know, again, my heart's beating I'm like wondering what's going on I'm a, you know I'm an, I'm an equity actor but I'm currently unemployed and trying to get it I'm waiting to I, I just finished doing South Pacific and getting my equity card and, and here you know this guy's screaming that I'm right for a movie role so I started like freaking out a little bit and I, I was a cashier at Whole Foods you know 
on my way back to Fort Lauderdale, they, I stopped by the studio and there was, you know, they turned this warehouse slash old flea market into like their production offices and there was all these p kids there like reading all these people that Larry found at skate parks and stuff and, and I grabbed all the sides I could to try to piece together what this thing was about and I had to call my boss at Whole Foods and told them that I was going to be able to come in that day and I walk in and my headshot's on the desk of a PA who's like, you, we've been looking, trying to get a hold of you and like everyone was like super excited about me and I didn't understand why like but it felt like one of those you know discovered in Schwab's like it kind of feeling you know and so I, I went in and then Carmen was there and I was like oh and I thought it was like a coincidence like I still wasn't putting it all together I was like I, I just met you and she's like yeah that's why you're here like I've been looking for you you know and I was like oh okay and then I started to get really nervous and she had me read and I think my reading was a little broad like very theater style because it was what I was used to and you know she was like listen I want you to strip all of the character work you're doing completely this guy's like an introvert like take it to the point where like you're in a documentary and I mean remember kids and I started thinking about it a little bit more and she was like I think you're great and I really want you to get this part but I'm gonna be honest with you Larry hates you <laughs> I was like okay she's like but what you need to do is just listen to what I say and you'll get the part so I was like well who's up who else is up for it and she was like pretty much I want you. She's like, because you want to see the guy that you'd be playing? You know, I was like, sure. And she handed me the novel by Jim Schultz, the true crime novel, um, Bully, a story of high school revenge. And I opened it up to the center where the photographs of the mugshots were. And I looked so much like the real guy. And that's when I realized, man, this is mine. It was the first screenplay I ever held. She handed me the screenplay. I'm like, this is a screenplay. You know, like, I mean, it was all theater, you know? And so I, I went home for a week and I, I talked to my grandmother and I was like, listen, I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to need you to help me out with like my rent and stuff, but I'm going to work my hardest on this. I've got one week. So I went down to the library, the Broward County Library, and I looked up, I, grabbed, I pulled up all of the original newspaper articles on the crime because the crime happened locally. And I remember it in the news. I mean, it came up the same exact time as the OJ trial. So as we all know, OJ like saturated the media and it, we, we, there wasn't, uh, I guess enough room to fit in this story to go national, you know, because everyone was obsessed with OJ, the media was having a field day and getting great ratings and stuff, so. But I knew about it because I was going to high school when all of that was going on, or going to middle school maybe even, but like I, I had heard about it. I, I looked up who the detective was, I called him at his precinct, he was still working, and um, I, I left him messages and um, to find out if he can give me any information whatsoever towards, well maybe he had a limp, or maybe he had like, I just didn't, I wanted to know whatever I could about the character. You so I can get this, and so I just I read the, I went and had to drive up to West Palm Beach to get the only copy left in in like South Florida of the book. Uh, I just studied it and I read it and I worked on it, and I mean it was my life for a whole week, like just everything surrounded by the story. And then I went in for the audition, and there was a lot there that looked like me. I I went into the room and Larry was there, and he was like, oh hey, like he kind of like remembered me, but not really, and. So then I just did it, like, did it as if I, the camera was like rolling, you know, in, in, the, in the past and in the future even. I've had moments where I've gone in and read or did whatever, but I just performed it. And Larry was, I mean, even the part where I take my shirt off and I'm like, I, I don't want to get blood on my shirt. I took my shirt off in the room and just was like, I, I just went for it. And, and Larry was like, you got the part. He was like, I have to see everybody else at a courtesy, but this is you, like, you could do this, like, and I was like, oh my God. And then he was like, do you want to meet Rachel Miner, who's in the cast, who was the only person in the cast I knew of, because I, I wasn't watching a lot of film those days, I was still wrapped in theater, and I had known about her in um, Anna 
Anne Frank on Broadway. She replaced Natalie Portman. So I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to meet her. And he's like, here you go. And then like, they, so it was almost like a game show. Like she came out of the back and she was like, hi, and like give me a hug. And I was like, I'm in a movie. And I still didn't believe it. Like I, I felt like I was going to get fired or like the other she was going to drop somehow and I was going to lose this job. But I walked out just on cloud nine, like, oh, this is it's starting. Like, this is what was meant to be. This is what was meant to happen. And, you know, I literally had no money. I ran out of gas on my first day driving to set and the PA had to go fill my tank up. <laughs> You didn't get paid for the part? No, I did, but they don't pay you right away. It's not like you get the job and they pay you. You get right. paid week. You know, they break your payments up in weeks after you work, and it usually takes the first two weeks of shooting to get paid. But like, I had no money. Like, how long were you on set? I mean, it's not you know, it's a, it's a not a substantial part, but it's a it's a you know fairly big for supporting character part. You're in like the last third well, of the movie, pretty much. I was there every day for 28 days. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't think I had any days off. I mean, it's an ensemble cast. We were all there every day, you know, in every location, pretty much. I think the one day that I wasn't, I was even there for some of the closed set stuff. I just wasn't there, you know, because it was all shot. I mean, the interesting thing I've always thought about, Billy, that a lot of people don't know, is that it was all shot in the real locations. Like, even my character's house was in the same complex his house was in. It may not be in his exact house, but they all look alike in each complex. And, like, I'm standing out front of the same type of house in the same complex that he grew up in. And, like, people would freak out. They would come out of their house when we were filming and be like, oh, my God, I know what you guys are filming. You're Derek, and, and you're Allie, and you're... Like, they knew all of us. Like, we shot in the real locations. The real detective plays himself in the movie. The real judge plays himself. The real bailiff. Um, all of the argument that we have at the end of the film when we're in the courtroom is directly transcribed from the court reporter. And it's to the point where one day it was raining and the locations manager was stressed out and he went for a walk because it was raining and he didn't know what to do. And, and he saw in the cement, Lisa loves Marty, written in the cement, written by Lisa. And they were gonna film it for the movie, but they thought it was too hokey, they didn't know if anyone would believe it. But everything in that movie was pretty specific. It's pretty crazy, it was, it was really eerie. See, I have a, a reaction to Larry Clark films. I think that's his best film, personally, because it's one of those things where it doesn't seem to... One of those things where his film films are generally, like, it's hard to figure out whether or not the characters have not been filled in, or he's just giving us characters who don't necessarily have, any, have much to them. And he straddles that line, and Bully straddles that line the best out of any of them, in, in my opinion, anyway. On set, are you just reciting? I mean, how free was it? Are you are you just? Is it just word for word what was in the script? Oh no, 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 no! It's the opposite of word for word what's in the script. It's it's pretty much it's pretty much let the let the story that's in this scene come out, but say whatever you want. And so that's I mean actually it's really interesting because I was just having this conversation earlier today with with one of my friends. But I wish I knew what I know now and was able to go back and do Bully because I, the freedom was alarming. Because coming from like a Shakespeare theater, you know, um, background, the, the script in theater is so important. Like every, every line is thought out because it supports the story. It's all fi figured out. There's action connected to everything. And then to come into a film, which I had never done, I mean, I'd done a couple commercials or whatever, but to, to go into like a movie, especially a stylized movie like a Larry Clark film, where there's complete freedom. I mean, complete freedom to the point of no blocking. Like, I mean, the, the cameras just follow you as if it were a documentary or reality show, whatever. Like, you are allowed to just kind of I would say more a reality show because you literally could walk wherever you'd like. And then, you know, and then they would just follow you with a steady cam and 
you know, and just, and, and, and it was just, the interest, our handheld, and just, it was so interesting, like, you can just do whatever you'd like. And now, to me, I needed a little more structure, I think, as a theater actor to be comfortable, so I wasn't comfortable filming Bully. Like, I think the, I was really nervous and stressed out. Like, as a matter of fact, on my first day of shooting, I, um, I don't do drugs or anything, but they thought, they all thought I did. Because on my first day of shooting, I got a nosebleed from, like, nerves. I just was so nervous because I didn't know without the, 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 um, the structure that I was so used to as a theater actor, it was completely nerve-wracking. But in, but in the same token, I'm, I'm, I'm a little method with my acting. I like to get into zones and stuff, and that's how my character was. You know, he was nervous to be a part of it. He, didn't, he was just going with the flow and didn't know what he was doing either. And so I think it really aided, in a way, um, to my performance. But I, I, I felt like I was going to get fired every day. It was, you know, it was a pretty volatile set, too. You know, a lot of young Hollywood, strong personality people you know, surrounded by me, just like, an, you know, kind of, I guess, a quote-unquote, like, normal guy, like, just coming into the scene. Um, it, was, it was completely alarming. I'm working on a film now, the remake of I Sit on Your Grave, and... Which, which, um, which character are you playing? I'm very familiar with the original. Are you playing the... Oh, okay. It, 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 character in the original? No, I am not. It is actually, it's a, it's a retelling of the story. It's, it's a lot different than the beginning. The beginning has, you know, I mean, does, I mean... There's less rape. <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't even say that. But I would say that the new version, definitely, um, the characters are different, you know? I don't know how much I really can say about it right now. Well, but, um, I, mean, I was going to ask, like, you know... But I am playing Stanley, who is one of the three guys, not Matthew, who is the mentally challenged guy, but um, one of the three. I think in the original he gets uh, killed by the axe in the water. That's okay. the character that I'm playing. Hopefully, um, hopefully they shoot that in a little more convincing fashion than they did in well, the original. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I can promise you that. I think this is um, this is one of those movies that that the remake is going to definitely ser like serve the original, but retell the story for a, a modern audience in a good way. But we're filming very much like Bully, and in, in which way I'm getting a little dose of voice fulfillment because we are shooting in a way that there is a lot of freedom and I'm able to walk where I want and attack, you know, and it's, it's the first movie that I've done since Bully that has a similar style to the way it's being shot. Everything's, you know, voyeuristic with, with the camera and I'm able to, you know, have that freedom. So I'm getting that opportunity to shoot something with that same style. So I, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. Is the intention to, and this is not a negative, no, never think I'm casting aspersions on anyone because I'm not, because I understand, you know, the, the minuscule difference now between low-budget films and stuff that just goes direct-to-video, the line is disappearing because of um, the closing down of the independent arms of the studios. Is this intended to sort of piggyback the recent um, Last House on the Left and Friday the 13th remakes and, and get into theaters, or is it intended to be direct-to-DVD? To There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, No, I totally agree with you. There are some things, I think, that going straight-to-DVD is a smart move, and, you know, especially some odd sequels and things like that, like, that I think, you know, serve you know, serve going straight to DVD. This, however, is is getting a theatrical release via uh, Cinetel and Anchor Bay. I mean, they haven't um, had major theatrical releases in a few years, but they've been holding onto this property for quite some time, and this has been the one that they've been planning for almost a decade to, to release, major, like on a major release. So it is going to get a release. Now, is, since uh, I, I, you've seen the original, I'm assuming, yes. uh, and... Uh, I, I'm, I have no defense for it as a movie, but someone who does is Joe Bob Briggs, and he is all over. His commentary is brilliant, even if I don't agree with it. Um, right. He, and all he keeps trying to do is make the point that it's some sort of feminist allegory, which I thought was a bit of a stretch. But well, that was that was Mark um, Zarki, the original creator's intention. 
Right. I mean, the original title was Day of the Woman. The distributor changed it to I Spit on Your Grave. But, like, it was supposed to be about um, a woman taking over, you know, like, take, like taking control of this situation. And definitely um, that element is brought into this. Is it, is it more, I mean, you know, yes, Zarki can, can claim that, and he said it was based on a real case, and I remember listening to his commentary, and what he describes is so much clearer than what movie he made, like, he, yeah. the movie itself plays exactly like any standard rape revenge movie, except that the rapes go on longer. But I figured if you're going to redo it, then, then to sort of bring forth the feminist angle amidst the... I'm assuming you still made an exploitation film, which is fine, because that's what it is. Yeah. I don't think it's much, like... I mean, like I said, I don't really know how much I can get into in divulge before. I mean, we're not even done filming, but um, oh, no, I can't I tell meant, you... I just meant, like, thematically. I didn't mean, like, you have to tell no, me... No, no, yeah. I, I can't tell you that, is, like... Is, uh, whereas in the original exploited um, Camille Keaton, you know, and exploited the idea of, like, a female horror killer, this is exploiting something different it, it still it still has the violence but it's more the torture of us and you know that kind of thing in the in the vein of like hostile and so on and those kind of films it's we're, we're exploiting different things this time around it, well in the sense of hostile and saw see I, I loathe the term torture porn because i think it's wholly inaccurate because what you know if if those movies were made in the 70s they would be called grindhouse films that's exactly what they are they're just right. current exploitation movies that happen to be successful more so than most of the grindhouse films are you are you referring to that it'll be a little more visceral in the gore or downbeat you said that you're happy with with um, I spit on a grave what would a good version of I spit on assuming I'm, and I'm not, you know, again, casting spurs on your thought, but I don't think I Spit on Your Grave is very effective, the original, at what it's trying to do, nor in what it ends up doing regardless. Like, even the unintentional don't work. But what, what is a, from what you've shot, what is, what is a good version of I Spit on Your Grave look like? I, I have to be very careful what I... I don't, I'm, not asking for, I'm not asking for plot revelations, because, you know, I, I, I saw the original. I'm assuming that you're not necessarily following it note for note, but it's still a rape-revenge movie. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know, it's a really difficult question for me to answer. Both because of my obligations not to reveal anything, and, and at the same time also because I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of filming it, so to get to, to talk about what it's going to accomplish when we have any, what it's going to achieve before we even have a film, it just. Well, what it just do, I guess I'll, I'll be a little more, I uh, won't be so specific. What does a um, pro feminist rape revenge movie look like if it's successful? Um, I don't know, I, I just think that uh, there's some element to watching a horror movie where uh, people are getting killed that you either don't care about, often, which is more often the case, I mean, in some of these newer, like, remakes that I've seen, like, uh, like the Bloody Valentine and stuff, like, we don't care about those characters when they're dying, you know, and it's like, um, and then when you see someone who's been put through so much and, and, um, whether it be a rape revenge film or whatever, but when you see someone who's been put so much through somebody and then end up turning around and, and turning the tables and getting, like, their full-on revenge, it's, it's it's two hours of, you know, it's one hour of the audience being tortured and then another hour of them just being completely satisfied and so happy that, you know, these people get what, what's coming to them. And I guess that is something that we are really trying to capture with this film. You know, the, the, the brutalization that the Jennifer Hills character goes through is on a 
I mean, even though it is on a physical level, it's also a crazy psychological level in our film. And then just turn around and, and have her um, put these guys through the stuff that she puts us through. It's just, it's a, such a, it's a stronger satisfaction for an audience. It's a reason for someone who maybe like the atypical non-horror movie fan that might see this movie for the thrill aspect um, will get such a satisfaction out of a killing in a movie. Well, is there, see, in, in the remake of um, Last House on the Left, I may have been one of the few critics to point, point this out, and it may be tasteless, me pointing it out, but how weird it was to see the rape scenes, and I only saw the theatrical version, so I don't know how hard they pushed the unrated version at all, but that the rape scene was relatively tame in terms of the sexual exploit. So, and then they also proceed out of, you know, near the end where they had one character survive for no particular reason and it didn't make any sense at all. So it was right. almost like letting the audience off the hook, which was strange considering how downbeat and depressing the rest of the movie was. The key would be not to, when I see, if I were to see a successful rape revenge movie, and there, there aren't many of them, if I can think of any at all, it would be that it would show the brutalization of rape without exploiting it and make you feel... I, that is, that is in fact what I think we accomplished. I mean, I can tell you that we've, we, have, we may not have finished the film, but we've already finished the rape scenes, which were extremely hard to film for everyone involved. And Sarah Butler, to her credit, is a phenomenal actress and has taken this role on full force. And um, in the scenes that we have filmed, I can promise you that it's a, like a no um, as you put it pussying out guarantee like we, we, we go for it like it's it's definitely um, going to be difficult a difficult watch for, for at least an hour and then for the first half of the film and then the second half of that with I think maybe not an hour but like the first the first quarter of the film you know the, um, the one one third of it anyway um, is going to be extremely brutal and then you'll be like it's suspense driven and then in the end it's satisfaction all the way like none of there's no holding back it isn't going to be um, x-rated I think it's done very tastefully without exploiting that part of it like you said I, th I think that's definitely a major consideration of the producers and director and the actors all of us to not exploit Sarah as an actress but at the same time um, we do not hold back on the brutalization I mean, you, either it's such a weird line to walk because honestly the, the rape was not brutal enough in Last House on the Left for you to really well, wince I mean that's what's needed and I'm like well is this like a ratings concession because it is a little limp sexualized violence where they know which is get to the MPA the most. So I never know, like, where is the line for that? Like, you know, shouldn't you theoretically push for X-rated NC-17 material because it, you know... It, it, it does, it, let me tell you something, it's done really smart. Okay. It's done really smart with a lot of thought. This isn't some, this is a story-driven movie. This isn't gimmicky. It's not anything like that. The story itself and what happens um, to her and what happens to you afterwards and who she becomes has it, it it really I think it's really going to deliver I'm super excited because I was just so excited about being a part of just I spit on your grave period like being a part of a movie that made such a, uh, a splash in the exploitation genre to, to be a part of something like that again and then I'm just so fulfilled to be working on a project that artistically is going to really deliver as well there's a lot of thought that's been put into this film. It's not, we're not just, they're not just making it to remake a remake. It's a, it's a really cool story. So how do, how do you go from, if you got cast, the second film you did was, was more a Christian message film, Hometown Legend. 
how does someone, how does the same casting director see something like Bully and go, oh yeah, this guy would be perfect? For well, that was actually, um, I was, I mean, you know, we all do movies, uh, um, unless you're extremely lucky in your career that you're well, doing no, no, just... No, it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of me questioning your instinct. No, no, well, what happened was, it's, it's actually interesting, um, was Jackie Morgan, Jackie Lee Morgan, who is the a line producer of Bully, was going on to his next film to line produce Hometown Legend, um, just to, you know, and the caterer of Bully was going with him to cater the next movie, and her and, her and I, um, had become friendly, um, and she was like, listen, I'm going to do this next movie, and you might be right for it, and, you know, I'm going to try to talk to Jackie about it, but you should read it and see if you can, you can see anything you can do it, and when I saw it was a football player movie, I'm like, yeah, like, I'm totally a football player, but I, I was playing a weak character, and I think he just saw me as weak and didn't see me as somebody who can go and, you know, which is the story of my career, I'm a character actor, I always look and, you know, and act like my characters when I am working because I feel like it just aids to um, my performance but um, I, I started wearing football jerseys to set like when I would before I would change into my wardrobe I would come in a football jersey and I remember one time we were shooting a scene which subsequently ended up also being the foreign uh, distribution of bully poster where we're in the um, uh, in a uh, convertible but we were filming a scene in a convertible um, driving and uh, it was Fort Lauderdale so somebody with a big boat was passing by us and sprayed us with their hose and wet us all down and we had to redo our you know, hair and redo our wardrobe um, and it just like it shut down production for like 20 minutes and so uh, later on one of the crew members in the presence of Jackie had asked me oh yeah I saw that and I'm like I know I was going to kick that guy's ass and I started acting tougher and in front of him and eventually he approached me and was like hey I'm making this other movie I mean my career is littered with me making not to take credit away from anyone or, or not to um just like like not not to be grateful for all of the breaks that people have given me but my career is um just wrought with me making it other people's idea to cast me <laughs> you know like making it Larry's idea to cast me instead well, of it that, being like is that how I mean cause you you, re, you must realize like what a strange security root it is from Larry Clark to a Christian movie back to Herschel Gordon Lewis um, oh completely and then to well all of those were all produced by Jack Lee Morgan yeah I was about to like, that had to have been the same person because there's no way that you know one person that w was that, that you got three separate viewers who all saw the same movie or, or something I mean because none so the, for my first three films I booked yeah for my first three films I booked them all without an HMR manager and my second two were thanks to Jackie um, actually Blood Feast is interesting because I've always been a huge uh, John Waters fan and I was watching Divine Trash this documentary on John Waters in my trailer in between takes on Bully and um, Boyd Ford who wrote the sequel to Blood Feast came by one day with Jackie and they were um, they were talking to me while I was in my trailer and they're like oh what are you watching and I told them about Divine Trash and they they were talking about Blood Feast and then they went back to the trailer and they were like Blood Feast should have a sequel I heard Herschel Gordon Lewis lives in Florida I wonder what he's up to I wonder if he would do a sequel and then they wrote it and put it together and it was sort of inspired by me watching John Waters documentary and, they, and so they got John to do the film uh, Blood Feast, and then I think that because it, I was sort of part, partially responsible for the inspiration for Boyd and Jackie to make that film, they wanted to make sure that I would, no 
knowing how what a big fan of John I was, they wanted to make sure that I would meet him at least. And so they called me up in New York and they were like, listen, um, we don't know if we can get you a speaking role in this film. We don't know what we have for you, but if you want to come here on your own dime, we can guarantee you will meet John. And that was enough for me. And I bought a ticket and came out to New Orleans and and now and met John, who was a huge fan of Bully. Bully had Mountain um, in all of his in all different magazines. He named it as his favorite movie of the year. And and I was like, I'm such a huge fan of yours. He's like, I'm a big fan of yours. It's like such a good movie. And so John and I remain friendly to this day. Like, but um, not only did I get to work with him, but we wrote a little scene together, like a little comedy scene, and it's in that movie. And um, that's how I got involved in that movie. And it was it's just amazing. I mean, it, I mean, I've had a lot of moments in my life where I feel like. Um, God's been like you're doing the right thing, and that was definitely one of them. Well, especially when because I, someone had to tell you to pay to go to pay to see him. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, but it wasn't. I, it wasn't even about seeing him. It was about like you'll have dinner with him or something, and, and you know what I mean. Like, and I just was like, okay, let's do it. You know, and there was also the possible chance that I, the off chance that I'd be able to work with him, which ended up. You know, and they knew that if I got there, it would end up happening at some point or another, you know? They didn't want to give me any promises, but when I came out there, you know, I, I, I think I slept on a crew member's hotel room floor and, like, bought my own ticket and, and ended up writing a scene and, and being in a scene with John. And the thing that's interesting about it, I mean, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, um, who is definitely not the best technical director out there. Well, I was going to ask, is it, did it work with Antonioni where the last 10 years of his career, they just kind of wheel him out to do some pa almost parody of his old material? He's not aware of it. Well, he was he was there, um, and he was directing everything, but, I mean, it would be like a scene where, like, a girl would walk across the floor and her heels would, like, clop, 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 and the sound would be awful, and he'd be like, perfect, print. I mean, it was hysterical, but, I mean, just like John, I was a fan of First Sugar and Lewis because one of the reasons that I love being a John Waters fan um, is because he not only will freely talk in his, in his um, book about, in his books and in his articles about all of the things that um, he's done, but he'll also talk about the people and things that have inspired him. So it's like, and when you like an artist, it's, and I try to do that for my fans too, I have blogs and stuff so I can keep them into what I'm into because I, I always appreciated that from John and learned that from him because I could find out about I Spit in a Grave and I could find out about Herschel Gordon-Lewis and, um, and other exploitation movies and directors and stuff because John would tell me about them in his books. So like, I was a Herschel Gordon-Lewis fan via John. Because John always talks so much about all of his stuff, and I, I went and would see all of his, all of those movies, and get a hold of them because of because John was recommending them. So to be actually in a moment where it was sort of a, a, a really a big coup for John to be in a movie directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis, and then here I am, you know, having my own sort of coup as being here in, with John, like being in a movie with him, directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis together. Kind of awesome. Like, well, one of the better moments I think I've had in my career. Like, and the scene that we film, we're sitting at a table in a wedding scene, so we have to, we, it's been a six hour shoot, shoot. Um, just John and I sat alone at the table. So I got to not only meet my hero and act with him and write a little scene with him, but him and I sat at the table together for six hours. And John loves talking about his career and stuff, and so I sat and asked him every question I ever had, and we became fast friends. Oh, it was really incredible. Now, when you were cast in uh, Party Monster, since the same guys made the documentary about the same, what what is the, could you tell there was like a weird transition for them? Or do you get what I'm saying? Like, 
you know, I know, I know that Kimberly Pierce did the same thing for Boys Don't Cry because she made the documentary about the real event, and then she made the movie itself. But uh, Party Monster is more difficult because it is about shallowness more than anything, and then to make it into a fiction film almost. Not ne- not necessarily on purpose, but almost endorses the behavior. It doesn't. I'm not well, saying the movie does, but you know, you like it's. It would be a very strange experience to take a serious approach um, to making a documentary and then trying to fictionalize it. One of the craziest things I think about Party Monster is that Randy Barbado and Fenton Daly, the directors of that film, um, there's all of this footage from the outlaw parties and stuff that Michael Ailey used to throw and. And they have all this, all, like all the, I mean, it was, I think it was the first club ever to have a TV commercial on television and all of this stuff. But when they were young, they were the ones that filmed that stuff. They have all of that footage because they were part of that scene. And they um, they were there and they were making the videos and making the commercials and filming those things. So it was a, it was a story about this crazy time and this incredible tragedy and mistake that, was the movie was filmed by people who were actually involved in it. You know, so I think that's that's where the story gets weird is that they're telling it from the inside. Well, that was, and, but uh, how, did, how did that change the, the fictionalized, you know, acted version of it as opposed to put these in documentary, which would have been probably a more natural process? I, I don't know. I just know um, it was the first time I was, I mean, I remember being at the premiere and having the actual, uh, Natasha Leone's character, Brooke, having the actual Brooke sitting behind me like feeling her face burn, you know, during moments where somebody was portraying her in such a uh, comical way, you know, I mean, and it made me realize, you know, um, the difference between, even more so, the difference between the movie version of an actual event and the actual event itself, you know, it, it, it completely was obvious because I was feeling her embarrassment, you know, by being next to her or whatever. <laughs> uh, did you get, when did you get an agent, you said you booked the first three, because, you know, if you wouldn't get a studio movie like Mean Girls if you didn't have an agent, I would assume. Well, you know, it's really odd because a, like a, like I'm a perfect example of a person who has, you know, made their way in their career a lot on their own. You know, I, I don't, I still, to this day, even though I like my manager and agent now, I don't really, you know, I'm not really fond of the whole process of having an agent and manager. Party Monster itself, when I was on Hometown Legend, there was an actor on there who recommended uh, Molly McCarthy, who ran the New York side of Handprint Entertainment. And I went and took a meeting with her and she signed me and my mission was to book something before Bully came out in theaters. I was like, I have to because then I could prove to people that I'm not just, you know, some guy that Larry Clark found somewhere because that was the problem I was running into in the early on in my career is everyone's like, oh, it's another Larry Clark actor that he just like found. Meanwhile, I was uh, an actor who went to school for acting and went to to a conservatory and then was, you know, earning my my stripes and my equity card like out on the road, you know, doing... uh, like 15 regional theater productions and like really trying and going the route of the hardworking actor and people always thought of me more as like oh this you know as my character you know this quiet introverted overweight you know like whatever I mean I gained 30 pounds for bully like all of that was character choices and then to go from there to have to like prove myself was my main mission so Molly signed me and when I heard Party Monster was being made there was an article in in, um, New York Magazine uh, with Macaulay Culkin and I immediately called up my my manager and was like I have to get in on this movie and they're like look we've seen the breakdown of characters and there's nothing right for you in it I'm like I don't care just get me in there and I'll get in this movie just get me in the room like they're like we don't know for what 
but we'll do it, you know? And so I had a meeting with Susan Shotmaker, the casting director, and she's like, so, you want to be in this movie? Like, I don't know where to put you. I'm like, just let me read the script. I'll find something. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I just, I, I was so taken by the story of Michael Alec and what he had done, and less so the tragedy and the, um, and the murder, but more so what he had done before that. I mean, they would, I had a lot of friends. I mean, being an uh, actor from a Larry Clark movie in New York City, I was immediately thrown into like the cool parts of nightlife. You're going to the coolest parties in these underground clubs and whatever, and I had met all of the club kids, and a lot of them were, were, I was friends with a lot of them, and I was club promoting, so I knew so many of them as doormen or whatever, and so I had heard different pieces and bits of this story like I, I knew nothing about really except I had seen the clubs on the club kids on like talk shows and stuff but I knew nothing about what had transpired with all of that stuff until I had to meet a couple of friends who lived it and then told me the stories so when the movie came out it was I wanted more than anything to be a part of it because I knew a lot of the original club kids so um I went in and I discussed this to Susan Shotmaker. She's like, take the script home, see what you can see. And so I looked and there wasn't really anything. I was like, well, I'm like, there's this host in this one scene, but that's like, like two lines. And then, then there's like the rat at the end, which is more of a meteor part, but you don't see me. And I was like, well, and my mom, I told my mom about all the parts that I might be right for. And she was like, well, maybe you could play both. And so again, this was a time where I went in and tried to make it Randy and Fenton's idea to cast me as both. So I came in to meet with them. Susan Shawmaker immediately took a liking to me. And I came in and they were like, well, we don't, we, we would let you, we would want you to play this announcer. Like, and I was like, well, I kind of want to play the rat. And then eventually Fenton was like, well, maybe you can both. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I took my cell phone into my pocket and I pretended to answer it. And I was like, mom, my audition went really well. And so they cast me in both roles. And again, another time that I had to like, convince people that I was right for something, you know? Um, and, 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 and how did how did Mean Girls come out of that? Did that come out of dealing with the same Well, thing? Susan Shopmaker, again, cast the, the New York cast, and I went in and read for it and forgot about it. And, like, I guess four months later, they were still searching for Damien, and um, she called me up on my cell phone. I was in between the managers and agents. I didn't have reps. And she called me and was like, hey, why don't you come in on this? And I was like, okay. And I had, when I moved to New York, I stopped watching television. I removed myself from it because I grew up as a kid who watched over 12 hours of TV a day. I would tape things and watch TV all the time, whenever I could. I seen one episode of every show that ever existed, like for my whole childhood, anything. I know the most obscure things. So when I got to New York, I was like, I need to concentrate on film now because I was so far behind not knowing in the film world. So I had a subscription to Filmmaker Magazine and the Movie Maker Magazine and all these different things. And I was really trying to like get into film and be concentrate on film. It was still sort of the end of the time where TV was sort of a taboo for a film, thing for a film actor to be a part of. So I wasn't even auditioning for television and concentrating on just a film career. So I didn't even really know Tina Fey because I, I, even though I had seen every single episode of Saturday Night Live from the beginning up until the time I moved to New York, the past two years is when Tina Fey really started to surface on SNL. So I was, and I figured part of the reason I wanted to do it was because if, and it worked for me, is that like I wouldn't be intimidated when I met someone from television because I wouldn't know their work. So it stopped me from starting, you know, getting nervous in meetings and things too. It really aided me. It's like I concentrate on just my duty to tell a story. So I met, I went in and Tina Fey and Mark Waters were in there and um, I just completely went in in character. I started acting, you know, really flamboyantly gay and like um, I sat there with my legs crossed just so and um, Amanda Seyfried was in there um, and they were talking about 
her about which shirt she should wear for her audition. She held up a maroon shirt and a tan shirt, and I was like, I'd go with the Merlot. And then they started laughing. They thought I worked in the office, you know? And so then I went in for my audition, and they were like, oh, you, we love you. We thought you worked here. We didn't know that you were auditioning. Great, we're excited now. And, you know, then I did my audition, and I mean, I thought it went pretty well, but according to the to Mark, I didn't really sell it until later on, but um, well, I did the audition. Sorry, excuse me. Quick question. Uh, because one of the things you notice, and while I find the movie funny, I, I sort of uh, flinch a little, not at your performance, but the way it's written, because it's such a stereotype, Is was were they wanting you to push that further? No, um, actually, I didn't know what they wanted in the beginning. You know, I always think it's better to go full out forward with a character choice and have someone ask you to tone it down, rather than then think you can't get there. Okay. That's always been something, just acting-wise, like, um, I like to come with everything and then filter out the stuff that's not needed rather than coming with less than because typically you know even when I've directed things it's so hard to get people who have less than to come up to something but to take someone down is a little easier so I went I guess I went a little full force in the beginning in my audition and then later on you know we did the stuff out actually Tina said it's important to me that Demon's just kind of like a regular kid you know and I think that in my portrayal I think a lot of the good comments that I get from from fans of the movie and uh, from you know just gay people that I meet is that I played Damien kind of real I mean he has moments where he gets feminine you know to like make his friends laugh or something like that but for the most part he's just kind of himself like he's just sort of average and I think in my opinion and in Mark's opinion and in Tina's opinion Damien doesn't even really know he's gay yet I think like he's sort of like I mean he's not like there's, there's no like sexualization of him he's sort of just kind of figuring it out himself there's I mean there's moments where I think you know um, he shows his flamboyance or whatever but he can't help himself he's just trying to be funny and have a good time like it's, there was never anything in the in the script that was uh, I think blatantly like too stereotypical I felt like it kind of played that really well and it's important to her that it was played that way because Damien was named was named after Damien who is her gay best friend in high school so it was a real person I was the only one in the cast that was actually a real person being played uh, and, and I'm assuming that led to a lot of offers after it of course, it's everything. Every time I ever do anything, for, for for an industry that's supposed to be a creative industry, a lot of the people that run it are really one note and not well, very. No, but in the sense that that you'd get offered all these scripts, hey, can you play the gay best friend? Everything. I, I I've turned down such amazing, amazing work, and not because I don't want to play another gay character. I it, it, if a character just happens to be gay, I don't think I would care. But when here's 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 a, 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 maybe this is a stretch. I would have to say that in Killer Pad, you did. Yeah, well, I think that, that, that this, this, the, the kind of humor in Killer Pad is that Dude Wears My, I mean, in Dude Wears My Car, you know, Sean William Scott and Ashton Kutcher, like, make out. And it's, 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 it's that same producer, and I think that the type of comedy is like this say comedy thing. I mean, it was, it was sort, of, sort of the genre of that, you know, that what, they're all kind of... What was the goal there? Because while watching it, I'm like, I think, I see sort of a dead-end kids, like... Bowery Boys kind of thing because it's so broad and you know they're so intent they're intentionally written as that dumb and yeah. you know speaking out what everyone has already figured out that kind of stuff well I'm not ashamed to say I don't like to bad mouth films that I do I, I'm, I'm, I'm usually like a, like a cheerleader for the production however um, that movie I, I I felt really bad about the post work on that film I mean it, it was it was a situation of where I felt our comic timing the work that we were doing on that movie was really fun and really great. And I felt like in the end, 
a lot of jokes and beats and timing was changed in post, like to really be off. Like I, I mean, we, I mean, I have never worked on anything where the chemistry was so spot on between the three of us on that film. It's, you know, especially Eric Youngman and I, who have so many scenes together. He's such a brilliant comic, and to this day, him and I are really close. And like, I mean, our, our timing with each other is perfect, and it always has been. But I feel like. There were many jokes in that movie where the beat would be like a three-beat joke and then it would change to a five-beat joke in post because they would use other takes and add them in and stuff. And I, I don't think that that movie works as well as it was originally planned that it was going to. Well, what was the... I mean, was it as... It wasn't as broad as it, as it plays now? Well, I mean, it was always broad, but in, but in the same sense that Indeed Where's My Car was and was a complete success or a uh, stoner comedy. You know, you chill, you just eat popcorn and watch it and laugh not necessarily meant to change the world, but it's a fun thing to do. But I felt like they ran into problems in the post-production with, with a lot of the CGI and stuff. It was never completed. And Was it ever intended as a theatrical release? I mean, it, I couldn't tell if yeah. it was a perfun- perfunctory one, like contractually obligated one week in L.A. or something, because I couldn't find anyone who'd reviewed it. Um, no, it didn't come out in theaters at all, actually, unfortunately. What works with um, Dude, Where's My Car is, is the, the sequences that are so surreal and over-the-top and ridiculous, but there's not any of that. Killer Pat is fairly consistent in what it's like. There's, there are no set pieces that, because it takes place in the one set, yeah. practically. There's no, well, no, we were supposed, the movie initially was supposed to have, like, the demons and, like, all these, all these different kinds of... Ghostbustery special effects monsters that were supposed to be in different scenes and stuff that never ended up in the movie because the something happened. I don't want. I don't know what or want to say what because I'm not. I wasn't on that side of the fence. But like, um, yeah, there were scenes where like you know we had like an, you know th- different things happen and I felt like again in post all of that changed. Well, it also seems like it was shot as a very mild PG-13 and which which again um it it wasn't shot as. But it was, it was, it ended up that way. No, but it's still, I mean, if you're, it's still got an R rating just because Bobby Lee says fuck at the end, but, but. Well, you're allowed one, you're allowed one fuck with a PG-13. I know, but there's like, he says it, and I think there's something, or someone earlier says it as well, so, and I guess the tone, and, but it, that, it got an R rating. I mean, again, again, it didn't make much sense to me, because if I were to make that movie, I would have just went for it. You know I, what I mean? I don't know why, you know, if you're going to make crude jokes, you're going to have. You're going to play with stereotypes and all that sort of thing. I don't know why you wouldn't just push it and be as stupid. And if somebody had the if, if somebody had the raw footage of that movie and did like a recut, I bet you it would be a completely like like great film. Like you know, and I, I mean, unfortunately, um, it's less than stellar. Right. Well, maybe maybe someone can sneak in, and you know how they do those fan edits all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> Cruel World was. I, I, here's the thing, I almost saw that at a festival uh, four years ago, but then I realized it just came out on DVD recently, but I don't know, like, your, your part is not all that substantial, you're in a lot of scenes, but you don't you have more than three or four lines, and it seems like you were written as a, I don't know, I, you, I thought it was almost unfortunate that you didn't have more of a part. But what well, you know, again, like, there's a lot of things in this industry that you go in one way and it comes out another way. And when I, like, I signed on to do that movie based on the original script, and when I showed up to set, I was handed a complete different script. Like, different story, different, so many things were so different about it, it was so crazy. What was you know, and then, different? Well, I mean, initially they had, like, um, like, childhood 
Claude and Phillips where it showed us killing our parents when we were young and all of these different elements to the film that were that were different. I mean there was more of a relationship. I mean the reason my head was shaved was because I'd pull out my hair so I I couldn't you know, there was all of these things that were that were thought about that were elements of the original script that I signed on to do that when I showed up it was completely different. And in the end I think it's still a pretty entertaining late at night grindhouse type comedy horror thing. You know, I mean I don't I don't dislike that movie. I still liked it. I think it's a fun, you know, goofy watch. It, 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 like Killer Pat, or whatever resembled, whatever Killer Pat ended up as, it really, to me, needed to push a little further, because it was tame in spots, and then you have, like, over-the-top scenes where Edward Furlong cuts off that girl's head, and then, then there's, like, off it, it, I don't know, it's very strangely organized to watch. And I can see, I can see how there, it, it might have been very different with a, with this different script, but I'm assuming it was always sort of the same story, but was it always so bound to that one set? Because that, that made everything kind of claustrophobic, yeah. but in the wrong way. There's a lot of luck that goes into choosing a script. I mean, there's like thought and stuff into it, but then there's also a lot of luck. Like I, I was very nearly close to turning down my shit on your grave because I was like, after Killer Pad and Crew World, you know, appearing to be one thing and turning out to be another, I didn't want to continue that at all with my career. I've made a couple of really great films in the past couple of years and I just, I couldn't take another one like that, you know? And so I, up until two days before I left to film this film, I was so skeptical. And I mean, all my reps were so nervous that when I got here, I wasn't gonna enjoy it. And I'm so happy to say that I think I Sit In Your Grave is such an awesome film. Like, so far I could say that, like, and really mean it. Because, like, when I got here, it could have been the same deal. It could have been some movie that sounded really great, had a really great script, and, you know, a really talented cast, and then I show up, and, you know, things could turn at any minute. It's, it's a risk that you have to take, because but if I didn't take this risk, if I was not taking risks, then I wouldn't be in this on your grave, and, and if this movie does turn out as good as I think it will, then I... I would have missed out on it because I was afraid to take a risk. So sometimes I have to jump in, you know, leap of faith. And, be, and my my thought behind my thought behind taking Crew World was, oh, I'm gonna play like this kind of cool killer part after playing Mean Girls. I I had a problem like you were you were you know alluding to before, which you were correct, is that after Mean Girls, I was offered all of the gay best friend roles in Hollywood. You know, from like Nanny Diaries to Ugly Betty to all these other things that people were coming at me with offers and and you know really enticing auditions, and I turned everything down because I, I just didn't want to get pigeonholed. I mean, I turned down so much press for Mean Girls too because I didn't want to be famous for one movie, you know, and be like a star of a decade or something. I, I'm, I'm slow and steady wins the race, and I'm going to be a character actor until I'm I'm not on this earth anymore. So I have to make my choices a little wise, and I mean. It, Maybe not looking at them all as individual films, but if you look at my reel or like my career so far, I play such different and broad. So um, I mean, are you going for like when when I hear you say something like that, I'm like, so you're going more for J.G. Walsh than the way that Joe Pesci ended up playing the same role for the rest of his life? Yeah, no, I don't want to play the same role for the rest of my life. There is something that every actor offers that they offer better than anybody else and they love to every once in a while every third movie you play go back to that thing and that thing for me is the lovable loser i think i definitely am always like i play a lot of lovable losers and i think that i'm kind of that, that was my niche as a young man because coming into this industry i was i've always been playing characters that have not been my age when i was in theater and I, from high school on i was always the old man or the weird 
a character guy. And then going into film, I was 26 during Mean Girls, playing 16, and I was trying to play younger. I mean, there's not a lot of six four three hundred pound teenagers out there, you know. So like the, the the roles were like few and far between for me. And if they were there, they were stereotypical. I mean, after after uh, Bully came out, I decided not to play uh, fat for fat's sake. You know, I was offered this role on Ed at the time, where this character was in. Um, Overeaters Anonymous, and he stands up and he's like, you know what, forget you, and he pulls out a sub out of his jacket and eats it in front of everyone, and I was like, mm, you know, and like, then it became, it became not wanting to play, you know, after, after Bully, it was like, oh, I, I don't want to play that, and then after it wasn't Girls, it was like, I don't want to play gay for gay sake, like, if the character just comes in and is like, hey, girl, and is like, gay, and like, you know, and that's the whole point of the character, then it, to me, I mean, just, just like I've been a fan of exploitation, um, Hollywood's going through a gay exploitation period where all the all of the characters that are gay are being exploited, you know, for the for the gay image. And I think it's something that's necessary for acceptance. I mean, before, you know, it was uh, it was capable. Now you can see an interracial couple in a, a couple in a movie, and you wouldn't even blink an eye. When the reason to make them an interracial couple back then was to make them interracial, that was the the scandal. And now people don't find it scandalous anymore because they've seen it in the media and they've seen it in film and television, and it's part of the art and the beauty of film that something like that that can expose a culture to different ideas makes them get used to it in everyday life. So there's only so many times that a character can walk through a door and say, hey girl, or something before your neighbor can do it and you're nine years old and you don't laugh. You know, I think the last the last hinge that we're still dealing with of black exploitation is old white ladies rapping. It's like, you know, like it's like the very end of like, you know, mixing the, the, the race card for a punchline. And, you know, we've seen it in, in Wedding Singer done to perfection by Ellen Dow. And now if you see an old lady rapping, she better be a good fucking rapper. Because that's the only way that it's going to be entertaining. It's not going to be funny just to see an old lady be like, yeah, dude, anymore, like, or, or anything like that. Like, those jokes are getting tired. And once they're tired, pretty soon we'll old driver on the top of the billboard charts. It opens doors. Once the joke is old, it's dead forever. And I feel like the gay exploitation period that we're going through now, the joke's getting old already. And I don't want to be a part of only furthering the ignorance and the stupidity. I, I, I'd rather be something like Amy and that's like a forward-moving role for whatever the movement ha ha happens to be. There was an animated film you, I guess you did a voice for a long time ago, but I, it suffered the Delgo fate of, uh, you know, they didn't get a dis distributor. Do you know what happened with that? It's such a crazy story, too. The, the technology that was made for that movie by, uh, oh man, I, I can't really recall the name of the company right now, but they were the company that did Beowulf and Polar Express. And they invented so many different things when it comes to motion capture animation. And they created this new type of motion capture animation where they do not need to put all of the different dots and stuff that were on um, on Tom Hanks or Polar Express. They have a camera that scans the face of the actor. That I just had to make expressions and facial expressions, and then on the screen I could see my character making the same expressions as me because they scan your face and then it becomes the skeletal of, of the structure of the animated character. And so they created this insane, awesome technology, and then they had their studio broken into and the entire movie stolen. And so then they had to recast and remake the entire movie again. So it's like a huge budget, like a ginormous budget for a film that probably should have come out years ago, and then they had to recast some of it, and I came in in the recasting, and 
and, 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 let, and lend my voice to a small character in the film. When, when, did, you shoot, when did you shoot your part? Two years ago, maybe three. No, longer now. Probably five years ago. It was one of my first auditions in LA. Like it's. I mean, it's just. It's been one of those. Another one of those troubled projects. It's not easy out there, man. <laughs> no, I understand, but it's one of those things. Like you know, eventually you cut your losses and you you put it out on DVD. Cause... Well, I mean, I think that the, uh, the director of the film is extremely passionate about this project, and I think now it's it's even become sort of like a. Uh, a mission to get it out there, whether it be on DVD or whatever, but they've worked on it for years. And, um, with the just I don't know if you know about Delgo. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. And I definitely, I mean, I think, unfortunately, that that might be the case with it. I don't really know where it's headed or what's going to happen with it, but it's, like, it's a movie that probably should have come out five years ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see it, that's for sure. It was my first and only for Ant animation, and that is a dream of mine is to you know, work in, in animation, I'm, you know, it's a really hard uh, genre to break into. Um, but once you're in, you're in, you know, and so I've been really trying diligently for the past few years to, to, to do more animation and stuff. I'm actually getting involved with some friends to do some shorts and things just to start doing it and having some fun with it because it's a passion of mine. I really want to be a part of it. And I was, I was sad to see that one go. I mean, ironically, I, I booked the first play that I ever auditioned for. I booked the first commercial I ever auditioned for. I booked the first movie I ever auditioned for, the first Broadway tour I ever auditioned for. I booked the first pilot I ever auditioned for. Like, And this is my first animated feature, and I booked it. And I think I've always just been like so hungry to get that first job, I guess. Maybe not all the second jobs, but um, I booked all of my first jobs in each, in each genre. Are there some films that you wish had gotten more responses that you weren't necessarily in, or maybe one ones that you were in? Like some, some, some hidden gem that like no one has really seen because it, it got buried for whatever reason? Kill, Kill Theory was supposed to have a very big release, but um, one of the financial companies that was responsible for it ended up going under and not being able to hold up their publicity and advertising agreement with Lionsgate. So Lionsgate, therefore, is just kind of release it small and put it out onto DVD quietly, I guess. But um, it's such a cool film. Chris Moore directed it. He's was partners with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in creating Project Greenlight and then had a production company with them for several years and it's his and he produced Feast and all those other movies and Joyride and this is his first directorial debut and it's a pretty interesting film it's a fun um, suspenseful slasher flick that has sort of a Hitchcock vibe to it you know um, it's like, kind of like a battle royale type movie where, where some graduate students who go away for one last weekend before we're about to go off and start our lives and there's a killer there who uh, locks us in a house and makes us fight each other and we're all friends so there's a lot of like those, those Hitchcockian elements of like juries deciding of, of normal people deciding another character's seat and things like that and I think there's a lot of plot twists and, and it's a really interesting movie and I wish that it would have had the proper um, distribution a couple of years ago when it was supposed to come out but I'm glad that it is getting a release at all at this point because I think it's a movie that people are going to want to see so what about some films that you weren't necessarily in that you maybe saw at a festival or um, I've seen a lot of good movies I mean I go to all the like not all but I try to go to as many festivals as I can and watch a lot of independence and stuff and you know there's a lot of times I have friends in movies you know Jason Ritter made Good Dick last year and that was a really cool picture that you know had, didn't get enough movement and you know I saw uh, Bomb the System with Mark Weber a couple of years ago at um, Tribeca Film Festival I thought that was a really neat movie and it really got a lot of a lot of attention and I, I guess you said you had mentioned earlier that you were you were directing what are you directing 
Well, I've directed female theater stuff. Like, I directed, you know, um, one of my friends, like, in a one-woman show, and I've done a bunch of things like that. And and I also teach classes at my college, so I've been in direct, the director position before. I haven't actually directed a film yet. But um, that is something that's definitely something that I will do in my career at some point. I'm still learning all of the different processes. I want to sit in someone's editing room and like learn different things before I go ahead and, and full on do that. I mean, when I first started in my career, every time I was on a set, every week I'd be like, what do you do? Oh, you're a gaffer. What does a gaffer do? And then I, you know, that's how I got my film education is just asking questions and finding out what everyone does and what their role is and why it's important. And I think that that's what makes um, crews also like me when I'm on a set because like, I know what they do and I care about what they do and, it, and I know how important it is for them to be there and I think I see a lot of attitudes in actors a lot of the times where they don't appreciate the people around them that help make them look so good. Uh, okay, you mentioned your blog earlier. I have a Twitter um, and it's What's Up Danny. Okay. That's my Twitter and I, and I have a Tumblr account and that's not a robot and those are my um, my two uh, blogging options. I also have a MySpace and it's uh, myspace.com slash Danny, which you can view my Twitter on and, and find out about my projects and stuff. Uh, anything else you want to add? or? That's it. Just keep going to see my movies, whoever's listening. <laughs> and now a bonus discussion with Daniel about the missing person and his interaction with director Noah Bushel. Your scene that you're, you have with Amy Ryan and Michael Shannon, it's kind of odd the way it's structured. Did he give you a specific direction, or you just, it was just the dialogue as is? Well, initially when we started working, he called me up after my first night and talked to me about my character a little bit. And I was pretty passionate about the fact that I felt like my character was, like, as the FBI agent, was a, a hardworking man who was out for you know, justice and there to do it for the spirit of the common good, whereas, like, Michael's character is more about taking the paycheck and being a drunk and, you know, going along with the ride, like, chasing a man who didn't even know why and that type of thing, whereas, like, uh... Well, I mean, my he's in the noir. He's not supposed to know why. No, exactly. But I'm just saying, like, he was sort of, like, a higher hand, whereas, like, I, I was, felt like... I was kidding. I mean, in the sense that the <laughs> character is so position in, in film noir. I mean, you know, I've seen Michael in other movies, but I don't remember him ever having that Dick Tracy expression before. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I felt um, that, uh, you know, it was sort of like a joint discussion between Noah and I about my character's attitude. Now, I hope you don't mind that I went through some of your films and looked for you and then skimmed through others um, trying to find... I hope you don't mind. <laughs> well, skimming up. 